Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Boxing Science co-founders, Danny Wilson and Alan Ruddock. Tune in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So Danny and Alan have been two guys that I've wanted to get on for a long time. Because apart from Duncan French at the UFC and Bo Sandoval at the UFC, haven't really had many guys on or any guys on that are working with fighters and in particular boxers. So I haven't had anyone who's specifically working with boxing. But obviously these two are a lot. So from world champions, British champions, European champions, Commonwealth champions have all passed through Sheffield Hallam and worked with these two guys and their team. So really interesting chat. So if you are interested in fighting sports and how strength and conditioning is developing on um, in that area, this will be an absolute dream for you. So a really good insight into uh, the profiling of, of, of boxing, uh, sorry, of the boxers that come through Sheffield Hallam and Boxing Science, um, some of the velocity-based training that Danny and Alan do with the guys, uh, and tons, tons more of great information delivered by the guys uh, at Boxing Science, Danny Wilson and Alan Ruddock. So, Definitely one for you fighting fans, um, and I'm sure you'll absolutely love this episode. I don't believe there is any secrets in in sports science. If there is, there isn't there isn't many at all. The secret is in the process and the way that you apply the information that you have, uh, and the way that you uh, use each individual's athletic profile and, and constraints of a situation. You know, whether that be time constraints, whether that be uh, work constraints, financial constraints, anything, using all that information and, and integrating it to, to get the best possible uh, outcome for your, for your athlete and for, the, and for the rest of the coaching as well. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Eccentric. So Eccentric are a Sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel training tools, the K-Box and the K-Pulley. And since its founding in 2011, Eccentric products have gone on to be used in Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NFL, NBA, a number of uh, other leagues around the world, including the EPL, where Leicester City, Chelsea and Arsenal are among the customers. So just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training with the K-Box and the K-Pulley. So backed up by multiple academic research studies, it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity, but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the K-Pulley, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X-E-N-T-R-I-C.com, or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU, who are a world-leading inertial sensor and software platform which is able to quantify body movement and workload metrics in the field. So iMeasureU is used by leading biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So iMeasureU recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app solution for lower limb load monitoring and has been used successfully by practitioners to optimize return to play for running base sports predominantly. So unlike GPS, IMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two really small synchronized high frequency tibial worn sensors. And these sensors can quantify three dimensional force of every step an athlete takes, precise left and right limb load asymmetry and cumulative bone load. So iMeasureU was founded by leading biomechanist Dr. Tor Bazir and was acquired by Vicon last year in 2017. So iMeasureU works with military, Olympic, pro and collegiate coaches and counts the Australian Institute of Sport, uh, Philadelphia 76ers and Harvard University as some of their clients. So if you'd like to get to know a little bit more about iMeasureU, head over to the website which is iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter at iMeasureU.
So without further ado, over to the episode with Danny Wilson and Alan Ruddock. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome two fellow Yorkshiremen in Danny Wilson and Alan Ruddock. So welcome to the podcast, guys. Thanks, Rob. Thanks a lot. Um, thanks for having us on the show. Um, you know, there's been a lot of big names uh, that you've interviewed in the past in the world of sports science and strength and conditioning. So, boom. No, myself and Alan, uh, really excited to be part of it. It's absolutely good to good to have you finally. Good to have you finally. So you guys are probably both both most well known for boxing science. Just before we get into the chat around something that I was, as we've discussed, I know absolutely zero about, and I'm trying to relate to it by talking about um, kids having fights in playgrounds. But just before we do get into that, I just want to give us a bit of a background on yourselves, what you've done beforehand, and then a bit of an overview of what boxing science is. Yeah, well, first of all, um, thanks for having us on, Rob. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, so I'm a physiologist at Sheffield Harm University. I've worked there for about 10 years now, um, worked with range of range of different different sports and different athletes, you know, all the way from wheelchair fencing um, all the way through to world champion professional boxers. Um, I've seen a lot of things and, and done a lot of things and got a lot of experiences, good and bad. Um, have a PhD in, in physiology, in uh, environmental physiology, um, which I completed last year um, and basically the accredited sport and exercise scientist as well. Um, and yeah, known Danny for probably about six years now, seven years, so yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll pass you on to Danny and he can explain his background as well. So, if anyone gets confused about whether it's Danny or Alan, uh, Danny's a more broader, slower Yorkshire version, <laughs> Alan's more intellectual one. He's going to be talking about the sciencey stuff, I'm just going to be talking about lifting weights. Uh, yeah, so uh, what a great introduction. Um, yeah, so my name's Danny Wilson. I've uh, been in strength and conditioning for uh, around about eight years now. Um, when I was younger, I was like football mad, Sheffield Wednesday mad, and all I had on my mind was either playing for Sheffield Wednesday or Sheffield Wednesday reserves. And, um, you know, I got to about 14, realised that weren't the case. So next minute I'm in the gym. Uh, looking to try and get as, as massive as I can. And that's when I fell in love with like kind of lifting weights, training, exercising. And that kind of like, you know, fueled my passion for what I wanted to do as a job. Um, did college, did sport, um, went to uni, did sport and exercise science. Got two years into it and really I weren't really applying myself as well until I did a, um, some work experience at college. And I realised like, that weren't for me, you know. I didn't want to go into teaching. Um, I found it quite boring. Um, it, it just weren't for me. And from that point then, I decided, right, I've got to do something that I enjoy. And I put my heart and soul in strength and conditioning. Uh, started, like, doing uh, some internships at Sheffield University, which I still work at now, um, and at Sheffield United Football Club as well building up my experiences at, at different football clubs, um, Chesterfield Football Club as well, uh, Sheffield Eagles, and then slowly, slowly getting in, into boxing as well. And that leads us on to um, boxing science. But also at the same time as, as launching boxing science, also got the job at um, England Golf. So I'm actually the uh, strength and conditioning coach uh, regional for uh, Yorkshire boys and girls under 16s. So that's a great role to be in. Um, and yeah, um, and about to, when I first started strength and conditioning, I, when I really didn't know a lot, I, start, I, I started getting into boxing at the same time and I was watching um, a, a famous strength and conditioning coach called Alex Ariza. He was working with Amir Khan and, and Manny Pacquiao at the time. And from then I was like, right, that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. Um, but there weren't any kind of opportunities to work in boxing as well. It's a pretty hard crowd to get into. So I started building up my experiences uh, at football clubs and different kinds of internships. And then it got to the point where, right, Alan and uh, our colleague, uh, Dave Hembra, 
they started working with uh, Kel Brook in 2012. And I saw that it was actually possible, you know, boxers are going to buy into strength and conditioning and sports science. But Alan and Dave, they went in um, working at the very top. You know, I had to start like working with like right right at the bottom, uh, working with some amateur boxers, doing voluntary, um, start working with Sheffield City ABC, amateur boxing club, which is about five or ten minutes away from the university. And just started like kind of getting my name out there and started working with a few more boxers. Um, started a Saturday morning session, just tra- getting boxers in, training once a week, getting them moving well, getting them stronger. And it kind of just started growing from there. Um, I started doing my masters uh, during this time as well. And I went to do uh, my dissertation, my research in doing a testing battery for boxing. And this consisted of like, you know, your, your current movement jump, your squat jumps, uh, your yo-yo fitness test. And we put it out there, you know, try and get as many boxers in there, free fitness testing. And we ended up having around about 30 boxers turn up and do, and do the testing in one week. From that, we told them what the strengths are, what the area, areas for improvements are, and how to improve that as well. You know, how to improve that, come and train with us a little bit more train twice, three times a week. And this started our like kind of our consultancy program at that. And then after the 10 weeks, obviously they, they made improvements. And what's the best way to um, kind of show, show them improvements is to share it through uh, a website, through a blog. Uh, you know, during all this time where we're building up my experiences, we also like started like my own online blog uh, where I put a few dodgy articles up there whilst whilst I'm still learning yes some good ones yeah but I was still learning my trade but like the naturally the next step was to to launch a website uh, and we launched Boxing Science and we were putting out free articles out there and more and more people uh, coming to our door and and wanting to train with us and we're fortunate enough to have worked with hundreds of athletes we've tested about 300 athletes now, uh, ranging from uh, schoolboys and schoolgirls uh, having the first bout or boxing for England, uh, all the way up to working at the very top level and working with world champions. So um, we're, in, we're in a very fortunate position. Like I said, when I first started, um, I didn't have one contact in boxing or, or very few, and it's just been through hard work, determination, and a, a lot of networking as well. Alan, how did you get Kel Brook to to be interested in what you guys were doing in the first place? We didn't. <laughs> um, okay. okay. So what happened was um, Kel had a very, very difficult match uh, against a guy called Carson Jones um, that he should have easily won. Um, instead, it was a bit of a war um, and his preparations for that fight probably weren't the best. Um, you know, he, find, he, he finds it difficult to get down to, down to the weight anyway. And, you know, if he's, you know, if, if he's not preparing in the right way, it just, it, it can all easily unravel. And so Dave Hembra was, was working at the Olympics with GB volleyball team. And he got a call from Eddie Hearn and he said, look, this, this kid, Kelbrook, He's a special talent. Um, he's going to go on and win win a world title, but he isn't going to win it if he's preparing the way that he's preparing. So we'd like you to help you. So Dave just said, "Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, we'll 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 get something <laughs> on for it." And then he rang me straight away, and I was like, "Great, great, Dave. What do you know about boxing? Uh, how, what do you know? Nah, not a right lot." Um, and so you know, Danny said. Like we went in at the, working at the top, um, whereas Danny started working with amateur boxers. But in terms of our knowledge and understanding of the sport, we were we were probably at pretty similar levels, but maybe only a year or eighteen months different in in terms of um, the, the time difference when when we started working with Kel and when Danny started working with the first amateur boxers that came in, and. You know, luckily, um, Kel's boxing coach was on board with it. 
um, and, he, and his dad was on board with it. We've got a few people um, on the team as well that was that was helping out around around that first camp. Um, and we worked with him for about ten or twelve weeks for the first camp. Uh, and I think he got a third round knockout in uh, the, the first fight that he was working with us, and then he went on to um, uh, have a few final a, a few final eliminators, didn't he? And some eliminators, and then he eventually got his shot at the the world title. Um, where he went out to America, um, to LA, and he boxed a guy called Sean Porter, who was the world champion at the time. He was unbeaten, and Kel was the first British boxer in 28 years to go to America and beat an unbeaten an American boxer on his own home soil. Uh, and I was I was lucky enough to to be in his corner that night. I was so, I was I was nice. sorting out his water <laughs> and his ice towels. An essential job. Exactly. Yeah. This is what the glitz and glamour of the sports scientist. <laughs> yeah. But um, class. So that, that's that's how it all came apart and that uh, came came together. Um, and then just you know uh, Danny being a student around around the same time and and being being interested in boxing. Um, I supervised his his MSc dissertation. We worked together on that, and it just it just came back from that. And uh, when he was he was obviously you have to write a literature review for your for your MSc dissertation. There were some bits of of knowledge that were out there that were really good, but there, there weren't all that that good information out there on on training and preparatory practices of boxers. And we just thought, do you know what? This is it's such a tough sport. It's such a you know, a, a very tough environment that there needs to be a, a better outlet of of good quality information. You know that that people can actually use and and either prepare themselves or their coaches can can access and and help them prepare their boxers for for competition. So this leads me on onto the challenges, which is quite well, pretty. It's just what you've just said about the the Cal situation and his preparations and things. What are the biggest challenges that you guys face when training boxers? It's not necessarily what what we face. It's probably what what the boxers face themselves because they're the ones that are putting their self, the the body through absolute hell to be able to be in peak condition when they they're in shape. But you know that we have to adapt our practices a lot. Um, based off uh, the the demands of the sport uh the first first things first is that they have absolutely massive training loads you know they have to um you know be in peak physical condition but also work on the skill as well and it's such high skill sport that they throw in you know different combinations pad work bag work um sparring as well you know they probably throw in well over a thousand punches per session, um, doing this action repeatedly, you know, causes poor movement issues as well. You know, so you've got tight shoulders, got tight hips, and they're quite tight around the ankles as well. So that affects the stuff that I can do in terms of strength and conditioning. You know, can't go to your, your gold standard squatting, um, straight bar deadlifting, uh, Olympic lifting as well. All these become different challenges um, when we do the testing. We found that they've got quite poor eccentric utilization, and this is because whilst they've been developed technically, um, they haven't been used using strength and conditioning for a long period of time. Um, you know, whilst they're coming up, you know, they've been doing boxing since they were seven, eight years old. They've got all these movement issues. They haven't actually been focusing on improving their athletic development as well so the lack of exposure to max strength training creates like you know poor eccentric utilization this is something that um the ufc performance institute actually found with mma athletes and you know the mma athletes that that we see in in our facility actually have a much better eccentric utilization than than the boxers um so that that shows kind of how um how poor it is but you know how to improve that you probably look at like doing heavy squats or doing some eccentric training but they haven't got the the scope to do that because they're in a training camp where the main goal is to make weight for a fight so they're more often than not 
like on low carbs um, uh, in a huge calorie deficit. And then you're talking about the different training loads that they're doing is quite conditioning based. And then strength training, speed training, everything like that, and the strength conditioning probably comes second fiddle to the to the running conditioning as well. So when you do when you're looking at like improving the eccentric strength, yeah, there's gonna be some soreness in that. How's that gonna affect the rest of their training? And if you think about the amount of soreness that they'll get um any normal athlete, imagine being in a 600, 800 calorie deficit as well. So there's some of the main challenges. Um I've just mentioned about about making weight um that's a that's a big issue uh where you're talking about um pushing an athlete if you're looking at a periodized plan you look to progressively overload your fighter um or progressively overload your athlete to meet peak performance but actually you've got around about six weeks to do that and then you've got three three weeks where their sparring intensifies, you know, they're sparring 10 or 12 rounds on on low calories as well and low energy. If you are doing, you know, you're thinking, right, oh, they can do, they can hit a PB, you know, this is what they've been working towards. All that goes out the window as soon as you get about three or four weeks away from a fight and they're doing all this sparring and the coach wants to see certain things, you know, you're you've got to adapt around that. You've got to kind of leave your ego at the door. You know, what What the main focus is for the athlete is for them to, you know, perform on fight night. You know, they're not there to hit the numbers that you're, you're wanting them to hit and, and to make your programme look great. You've got to kind of uh, work around uh, the demands of the sport. Um I can't think of any more. There's lots of other challenges. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the sport in general is um, fairly chaotic yeah. um, and, you know, disorganised in, in some, some respects. So that makes it hard as well. Um, and that makes it hard to plan sometimes. I mean, the, sometimes I don't even know that they, they've got a fight until, you know, eight eight weeks out, six weeks out sometimes. Uh, or sometimes it's a last minute chance to get on a big show and you know for professionals you know you've got to remember that the prize fighting the fighting for a living um, and the fighting to make money and so for us there's actual there's a challenge there's an ethical challenge as well at some point if they you know if they're out of condition and and they need to they need to to fight to make a living it's the case of right okay we know that it's going to be you know not the best situation but they're probably better preparing a little bit with us and um you know helping them to drop the weight and helping them to get a little bit fitter and go into the ring a little bit a little bit safer um you know so but that makes it difficult as well does the short training camps or or lack of a little notice from a from a training perspective as well um i think that's that's quite, yeah, what, quite a lot of challenges. Yeah, what you're, what you're saying there, Alan, <laughs> about the, the chaotic nature of the sport, we can't put any like long-term plans in place. We treat each camp as they come, so we can't put a, right, this is what we're going to be working for a year or, or two years or maybe for four years if you're thinking about your Olympic cycles. We don't know how many times we're going to be boxing in here. You know, We've got a boxer called Jordan Gill, that didn't box for 18 months, but then now within this last year, it's boxed like five, six times. So it's 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 definitely definitely a challenge to be like, right, you know, if you're looking at the long-term development of a, of a fighter versus right short-term and short-term impact as well. You know, we've got a saying at Boxing Science that every fight's a world title fight because if you lose or don't perform as well or something like that, that'll affect your your journey to the top. So we've got to make sure that our fighters are in, in peak condition every time, which unfortunately um, doesn't suit like long term planning and, and long term development as well. No. I mean you've got you've got to remember that you don't play boxing. It's not a game. Um, you know what I mean? There's no there's no time to messing around. You can't can't be putting gimmicks in there. You can't be trying out fancy things. You've got to go with good, 
good, sound scientific rationale and understanding for, for every single exercise that you do. And, you know, we, we have high standards and everything we do, we do for a reason. And we try and track as many things as possible when we're, when we're training so that we can refine and evaluate and, and optimize each situation because that's really what it comes down to. You have to have a plan, um, a plan A, plan B and plan C for every situation and, and try your best to optimize each situation. And, and, and that's what really, you know, forms the rationale for quite a lot of our training, isn't it? It's, it's just to, to do the best we can with what we've got in each and every situation. So let's, let's dive in a little bit on some of them challenges. And one thing I want to go back to is what you mentioned towards the start, Danny, and that was the, the movement competency side of things. Is there any, uh, you mentioned that the tight hips, issues with the shoulders, tight ankles, is there anything that you modify on a regular basis because of the, I suppose, the upbringing that these these guys have had without the with the lack of S&C, which hopefully you guys are um can try to tackle with the guys that you work with anyway but um when they get to you because of that lack of uh, snc grounding that you commonly have to do like you mentioned about the heavy squats so if you can't do the heavy squats what are you doing regularly as an as an alternative to that yeah that's that's probably a full podcast in itself about the uh, <laughs> that, that, uh, um adapt the strength condition but when an athlete first walks it through the doors, you've got to think, right, what what can they do? Um, you know, and and have a good look at, uh, at the movement patterns. But also you've got to think about, like, the quick wins. I was just saying, if they've got a fight coming up and you're thinking uh, of a long-term athlete development plan, um, you know, you've got to get results for these guys straight away. So... I do like stuff like, you know, you do your goblet squats, your, your landmine squats and, and stuff like that. You won't look to load them up back squats, even though, like, some of the athletes that you think, like, right, they need a lot, a lot of work on their technique. Sometimes you kind of turn, turn a blind eye a, a little bit um, just so that they can feel feel uh, feel good and feel like they're getting stronger. Um, you know, i I don't deadlift from the floor uh, with with a straight bar because they're, they're limited around their their shoulder, their shoulder strength. That limits the amount of weight that they can lift, and also can you know increase the loadings through the spine and all that. Um, so we look to do uh, trap bar deadlifts or like kind of deadlifts from blocks as well. Uh, Olympic lifting, we only do clean pulls and, and maybe split jerks for them that are that are really like, you know, got the technique really driven into them. Um, but like in kind of overhead work, um, we tend to like go for landmine, um, landmine press, landmine split jerk, uh, landmine punches, uh, kneeling landmine press as well. Because like we're, in terms of the overhead mobility, um, the shoulders are so tight um, and no matter how many times you, you, you stretch them or, uh, do activation work or, or try and learn the actual lifting technique overhead pressing, they're still punching thousands of times in a day or 10,000 times in, in a week. Um, so you, you, you're always, you're always in a battle with, with the demands of the sport again. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that a few of the things it's like, building them strength and them their movement foundations that you'd see in any gym or, or any athletes but making sure you're trying to get your quick wins your straight your, your gains in your strength and speed and, and making it look good and feel good for the boxers as well nice so you mentioned about testing um how many athletes you've tested over the last couple of years is there a, is there a um a set pro is a set protocols that you guys use no matter who the boxer is age, weight, um, running through the the, the system. Um, we've got a few, haven't we? Um, and we we started with with one, which was more physical testing. That was um, that was Danny's MSC. So we a, a bit of anthropometry, uh, some jump tests, a repeated sprint test, and then a, and then a yo yo test. And that naturally then progressed into. 
the full testing battery that we have now, um, which is a movement screen, overhead squat, single leg squat, and then we've got counter movement jump, squat jump, um, and then a bit of anthropometry. And then we've got a, we use a, um, a load velocity profile using a landmine punch, um, landmine punch thrower. Um, so we can get different velocities for, for different loads and start to build a profile as to, you know, what type of, of athlete we're working with. Um, are they more explosive? Are they stronger? And then we've got uh, two running tests. So the, the first running test is a standard lactate profile, three minutes of running, uh, one minute recovery, uh, increasing increasing speed until we see uh, the second break point in blood lactate. Um, we also measure um, usual cardiorespiratory variables associated with that. Um, that's really important because we can, we can start to then build a picture as to what kind of, of athlete we're working with. Are, are they more of an endurance type athlete or are they, are they more of a, a high intensity explosive athlete? And then the final test is um, a modified version of the 3015 intermittent running test. So we will do that on the treadmill. So we've got the high speed treadmill in the lab. Um, so we can do, we can, we can set the treadmill at a certain speed and they run for 30 seconds, have 15 seconds recovery. And then the, the speed increases by 0.5 kilometers per hour, starts at eight. And the record is 25 kilometers per hour on that. Is that you, Alan? <laughs> do you know what? I haven't done it, but I reckon I'm going to have to do it. <laughs> So that that's like more like our like one to one or, or small group testing that we'll probably do with kind of high performing uh, amateurs or, or professional boxers, but with, with our like kind of group testing for young amateurs or anything like that, you know, we'll do the jumps, uh, the gym aware punches. We'll probably substitute that with a with, with a medicine ball punch throw, uh, and then with the running tests, uh, we we just did a a box standard 1200 meter um around the track running test and that's with um that's what we've done with with england boxing down at the eis uh because basically we had 90 boxers to uh test in one day so that nice. that was a challenge <laughs> so yeah so <laughs> sometimes we can't go as in depth as that that we'd like to um but we was try and get as as much data as we can to feedback to tell them what they're strong at and where they can improve as well. Mm-hmm. So let's move it back to the conditioning on the conditioning front for fighters, Alan. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about the methods that you guys use and maybe how the initial testing battery and seeing what kind of athletes you've actually got affects what you do moving forwards with these guys on a conditioning front so if you if you picture um maybe a, a rocky movie or picture uh, a boxer doing their traditional conditioning it might be all hooded up uh, running early morning or late at night plodding away uh, pounding the streets no real intensity, just just having a, a run. Usually, that standard run, it's normally about five miles um, or, or six miles or, or something around a 10K. Um, some of them will, will, will pick out a 10K and will, and will think, if I do 40 minutes for that 10K, then that's a bit like a 12, 12 rounds of boxing. Um, or they'll go, I'll just go out five five miles i'll do an easy five miler it won't be too hard um but it won't be too easy and i'll and i'll get a sweat on um and because i'm all hooded up and i'm laid up i might i might drop a bit of weight through uh, a bit of, a bit of sweat as well um but in reality boxing is not single paced it's not an endurance sport it's a high intensity intermittent impact sport and We've got to prepare our boxers in the best possible way and optimise as much as possible to prepare them for, for those demands, whether that's three rounds of amateur boxing or whether it's 12 rounds of professional boxing for a world title. Um, the systems and processes are, are pretty much similar, whether 
for, for both those those two um, two groups. Um, no different. Some a lot of the amateurs will perform conditioning sessions that are very similar to to the elite elite boxers as well. And um, so when typically when a boxer who hasn't been on our program comes to our program and we test them um, with the lactate profile uh, and the cardiorespiratory analysis, they, they, they generally look like endurance athletes. They are very good at, at working um, at a, a constant intensity that, that's fairly fairly high. Um, they, have a, they, they will be able to, to utilize a lot of fat as a fuel source um and you know they will generally fatigue quite quickly as soon as there's a bit of acidosis build up and and so they've got a good engine they are fit and they've got a good engine um and you know they've, they've got to a level that they've got to because of that kind of training but we've got to ask ourselves is it optimal does it replicate the demands of the sport uh, and is it does it fit with their with their training um and how we want to prepare our athletes and how we think boxers uh, should look like um, when they're fighting as well. And so, you know, a lot of our conditioning is is based on high-intensity interval training, sprint interval training, and we've got kind of three three different focuses that we use quite quite a lot and quite often, um, and that they are sprint interval training, uh, what we call muscle buffer training, and then high intensity interval training, uh, off the back of that, and each each of those types of training are designed to cause uh, different physiological adaptations that we can then add sequentially, and so each leads on to the other. Um, especially with with the younger younger amateurs, you know, we 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 said earlier that you know. Sometimes we have to work from from camp to camp, but if we if we have a a younger boxer that we know is in their development phase, we can actually start to elongate the process a little bit and um, start to look at how we sequence in these things and and how they leading on to each other. Um, but for for the guys that are got to a certain level, certain fitness, we then have to get very bespoke for them, and they'll have a very individualized program for themselves as an athlete but also to represent what we think the kind of demands are that they're going to face next in their, in their next boxing match. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Alan and Danny. So in part two, we discuss obviously more around what they do at Boxing Science, but in particular, how they utilise velocity-based training into the programming and profiling of the boxers that come through the Boxing Science doors. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Black Box Fitness are a specialist gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So if you are looking for a complete gym fit out or just looking for bits and bobs to uh, add to what you've already got in your facility, make sure you check out Black Box Fitness. Um, Their website is blkboxfitness.com or you can check them out on Instagram and Twitter at blkboxfitness. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics for also sponsoring this episode today. So Hawking Dynamics offer the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, Head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo, and follow them on Twitter at hawkingdynamics. So over to part two with Danny and Alan. So just digging a little bit deeper on the three kind of buckets of um, or types of training and different yeah, physiological buckets adaptations. Of pain. Buckets of pain. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 
just talk to us a little bit about when you would like I know you said about it being very sequential, but what kind of adaptations you're looking for in each um, each of them buckets and where they would fit in in the plan? Yeah. So in a let, let's take a a standardized plan. It's not always this this nice and neat. Yeah. But if we were if we were starting uh, with a bo- with a boxer who uh, is new to the program, the th- the, the first thing, and this is this is something that we were able to do when we got the curve treadmills, also known as the devil's hamster wheels. Um, <laughs> we could we could perform sprint interval training on the curve treadmills, and so we could do one of the the classic standard, um, you know, Jabala Burgomaster program, which is um, four times thirty seconds of a Wingate load. I just drag and dropped that research and uh, placed it onto the curve and w- one of the classic sessions that they'll do is four 30 second sprints as hard and as fast as they can go um three minute recovery uh, between between the sprints um when we're doing that we're looking at taking as much assessments of speed as possible and we'll track we'll track as many things as we can we can do that's that's reasonable to to track and the database is full full of statistics of, of speed of heart rates of blood lactate um and so we know when the boxers are performing well uh when they're beating their standards because you know some of the guys have gone through i don't know maybe six or eight maybe more maybe more cycles of sprint interval training and, and so we've got a very detailed background and history of their performance during that type of training um, so in terms of physiological responses, uh, there are uh, a lot, um, but the main aim of the 30-second sprint intervals is to improve that the way that our boxers utilise oxygen at a cellular level. Um, so we're, we're, with those sessions, we're, we're primarily targeting um, oxidative enzyme capability. But because they're high force as well, they're also getting high neuromuscular recruitment, so high threshold motor unit recruitment. Uh, and they're also probably, with the little bit of, of eccentric load that they're getting there, or, or some kind of, uh, well, high, high load through the, through the neuromuscular system, probably some changes to muscle architecture as well. Uh, and, and all that leads into force development. You know, we try to do things with as much intensity as possible. And that's one of the things we've learned over the past two years is that if we can manipulate intensity so that we can get more external load, so more speed, essentially, for the same physiological demand, then that, that's beneficial for us because then they can, they can use their conditioning as an additional form of high-speed strength training. And... The 30 second intervals as well as having a physiological effect also have a psych- very, very beneficial psychological effect as well because it takes them to a very, very dark place. You know, there's, there's not that many people that have been to the to the dark place, you know. Um, it, is, it is pain, but we've got to remember who we're working with here and, you know, we're working with, with boxers who are putting their bodies on the line and... There's not that. There's not that many safe situations and places where they can really test out their their physical and physiological and mental limits, and so we can do that in a safe in a safe place in the lab, relatively safe place, and 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 it allow, it allows them to you know to to go to those places and and, and be able to to understand what it takes to perform under those adverse conditions you know when when you're absolute when you you're physically struggling to walk to the treadmill to do your last rep or when you get off the, the treadmill and all the thing you can do is collapse in a heap there's no comfortable position it's just a horrible place to be in but that's where the best thrive and that's where they come through and you know we've got to do a bit of amateur psychology sometimes as yeah. well to to motivate these guys for the session if they've come in low energy they're on low calories 
they've had a tough week. It's back end of the week, and you know they're just looking forward to finding some breaks somehow. And then and then they know they've got to do a sprint interval training session. You know, you you have to really have a good relationship with with your athlete and understand them, understand what makes them tick, and try and get them through the session somehow. So it also pushes them psychologically as well. Danny, uh, can I hear a cup of tea being stirred a minute ago? Have you got a cup of tea? No, no, water. Oh, <laughs> I thought we were going to do a cup of Yorkshire tea then. That would top it off. I, I, I had one to G myself up before I came out. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, so training outside of camp, how does that, how does the, well, inside and outside, how does the conditioning differ as soon as they get word of a fight in eight weeks? Does that switch just flick instantly? It's it's pretty hard, um, like question to answer really, because mm-hmm. we our our boxers are like almost in camp, like three hundred and sixty five days of the year. Yeah, okay. um, they're all, they're always looking for that next day, or, or making sure that they're ready for that next day. If you think about, um, you know. We just mentioned Jordan, um, you know, boxing five times, six times in a year, and you've only got about ten uh, between eight and ten weeks. That's that's your full year of training. So it's, it's in camp more or less all the time. Um, I've had the benefit of working with athletes that are at the start of the career and athletes that are towards the end of the career, and I can see like kind of how much. The training, the making the weight, the fights have an effect on on your body in in the long run, and it's really opened my eyes to training off camp, making sure that they're not actually like no. Obviously, we need to make sure that the weight stays down, but we need to find different ways where they're not taxing the body. If they just keep running and uh, keep grinding grinding out sessions all the time, that your 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 fit your fitness and your sharpness can just go um in 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 the space of, of a year or, or six months is it's it's unbelievable. So we've just got to make sure for, for the longevity is that in between camp, yeah, we're still working towards phys- physiological adaptations. Yeah, we're still trying to keep that weight off, but we're also look looking out for the long run of of the boxes as well. A lot of things that that we do, like let's say if you know we have got a, a boxer that that's training at home, after straight after their fight, uh, let's say if they they've weighed in, they're more or less likely to put on anywhere between ten pounds and a stone uh, overnight, and when they get into the ring after the fight, they'll go out for a celebration, they'll have a bit of cake, they'll have a bit of. Uh, unhealthy food maybe some pizza as well so the you know you're looking at them putting a stone a half to two stone on within the space of two like like off like a week or two weeks so if if you kickstart their their training process again that's where injuries can happen that's where you can start like kind of picking up your niggles right at, right at the start of the camp so we look to like try and find different different ways to, to condition them, maybe like work on a lot of movement training, step away from some, some heavy lifting uh, in terms of conditioning. Maybe if they are on the treadmill, longer intervals, so maybe like six-minute or eight-minute intervals where they're not running as fast, but we're still working towards them central adaptations and working in the red zone. Um, and then, you know, maybe even taking them off the feet, you know, do... Uh, the what bike, what bike's a great alternative. Um, maybe swimming, probably won't hit the red zone during swimming, but if it's burning calories and keeping the weight down, then they're going to be in a better position. Um, but like I said, there's not many times where we have to think, right, this is a solid off-season camp, let's work on specific adaptations. Um, it's, it's, it's like a week or two weeks at a time to make sure that when they come back into the lab and come into the boxing uh, come back into the boxing gym that they're ready to go and kickstart the 10 week camp so danny where does 
velocity-based training fit into all this? Is that something that is used all year round? I know you mentioned it as part of the, the profiling right at the start, but is that something that's used throughout the training process? It's um, it's used with, like, I'd say the most experienced lifters that we've got on the programme. So, you know, my S&C background and, and my beliefs and my kind of coaching philosophy was all around kind of getting the athletes as strong, moving well, get them as strong as they can and then move them on to like some sort of Olympic lifting. But when we did Olympic lifting, you know, only certain boxers could do that with their movement issues and the technical ability. And even those that are te- technically able, they actually like struggle like with the with the wrists and with the elbows and weren't quite hitting the weights that they needed to to improve, uh, you know, make strength speed adaptations. So we needed something else to to be put in there, and um, it. it kind of came through necessity uh, when we worked with Kel Brook for uh, the Golovkin fight. And for those that um, don't follow boxing, basically Kel Brook was stepping up two weight divisions. I think, what was it, 16 pounds? So the stone, it was stone, weren't it? The stone oh, heavy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. So, so he, had to, he, was, he was performing a, a stone heavier. So we needed to, like obviously make sure that he's, he's strong at middleweight, but a big factor for his performance was his speed. So we, we introduced velocity-based training there and we got a few boxers on that at the same time. Uh, and we saw some like we saw some great results, not only in their, in their lifting and speeds and, and max strength, but also in the kind of movement jumps, the squat jumps and in, in the session wellness report as well, because we found that, you know, working at a slightly lower uh, percentage one RM and uh, working to, to uh, high velocities and having reps in the tank, actually they got they got stronger, but it weren't affecting their other work as well. So we've been like for the last two years we've been try like using trial and error. Obviously we take all all the data uh, on many different training methods and strategies, and our intern and, and now. Uh, our strength and conditioning coach Tommy Monday, who uh, is, is like a brilliant asset to the team, um, he did his undergraduate study on like optimal loads for trap bar deadlift, and you know the results varied from individual to individual, but we generally found that the optimal rate of force development values are between thirty and fifty percent one rep max. Now. We've talked about the challenges of boxing and we're wanting them to get into peak condition um, fight by fight. So during a training camp, we want to try and focus on, right, what is the what what is the load? What are the exercises that are going to optimise that rate of force development? So, you know, we... we use velocity-based training to make sure that we're working at lower percentage one or one met maxes but obviously trying to um to optimize that training um you know working in that specific zone during training camp having just 10 weeks getting them into shape we can't put in the blocks of training that we think right go on to the next camp you know we optimize that performance every time so so yeah, so velocity-based training, we use it with like trap bar jumps, uh, trap bar deadlift, uh, working squats, um, loaded counter movement jump as, as well. And yeah, so what we're saying, we've, we've got like a short amount of time to, to get them in, into optimal, uh, optimal shape. And if we were like thinking, right, we've got to improve their, their maximum strength. If we've only got around about five weeks or, or maybe some four weeks of working maximal strength, they're never going to like put more than two kilos or five kilos onto onto the max deadlift or, or the squat. So we need to find a way that we can maintain their maximum strength levels but try and improve everything that's underneath it. So improve their ability to be strong and explosive, uh, 50%, uh, 60%, one rep max. We've we've trialed and a few different training methods. 
you know, we've done a four-week block protocol working max strength, strength speed, and speed strength, and going back using exactly the same exercises again, and um, and, and work, working towards them thresholds. Uh, we've used um, another training method, with, like contrast training method, during the max strength block. So we paired up trap bar deadlift with with some trap bar jumps uh, before moving on to sixty percent one met max working uh, and working towards like uh, speed strength at thirty percent one met max. And then we've experimented using a reverse periodized plan. So actually starting at speed strength, working up towards uh, 80%, 85% one, one met max, and then dropping back down to the speed strength, working on trap bar jumps. And what we've actually found with all them three methods is that we've been able to maintain maximal strength, but we've improved everything underneath it. You know, we're looking at 8% and 15% changes across 30% one rep max all the way through to 80% one rep max. So we're not actually getting the athletes any stronger, but you've seen a real shift in their force velocity curve. And, you know, you're look, looking at your your wins for, for the training camp and, and the challenges that we face. You know, we, we're getting them strong, we're getting them explosive without actually been detrimental to the uh, the training priorities, which is to get them as fit as possible and be, have the best possible boxing camp as well. So one of the key phrases that, that we will use is what's the risk and what's the reward? Now, the risk of loading them up and getting them to, to squat heavy or, you know, deadlift heavy or even, you know, try and you know slipping a few olympic variations in there the the risk for them is high you know the risk of injury is high the risk of overtraining and them getting fried is high and the reward is actually is probably not that great when you compare it to other methods and so you know what we've done is is a series of of different mini scientific experience case studies bit of dirty science in there and and really like danny says really you know trialed it out and that's that's one of the the strengths that we've got is that we're questioning everything and you know we're using the data to get the best answers possible in every situation and trying to optimize every every opportunity and so you know there's, there's there's quite a lot of things that will that will crop up and like okay right what are the what are the options here what have we got and there's always an optimal way of working there's always you know there's always the best way of 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 choosing something but you, to understand that you have to have a good understanding of what your options are and you know you've got to have a plan a b b and c and with the data and, and, and the metrics that we collect, we've got a really good evidence base. So not only are we using evidence-based practice from, from the research, uh, practice is also evidence-based as well. Um, because, you know, we take so much data, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of data points for, for different exercises, whether that's conditioning, whether that's, whether that's weights, um, velocity-based training, you know, loads and loads of different things and it just allows us to be very uh, objective in, in a lot of things and, and using a bit of coaching science in other areas too mm -hmm. cool well i just want to ask a couple more questions and this is probably going back to what i should have asked at the start and what what is the what's the long-term goal for boxing science from a business point of view um, there's a few different goals at Boxing Science. Of course, we want to be working at, at the very top of the sport, and that's not because it's 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 the glitz and glamour, and we get all the attention from that. It's more like that that is the biggest that is the biggest challenge working on, on a world title camp, working around the uh, the massive training loads that they have, working on them around like making weight and everything like that and then obviously the reward is is the absolute pinnacle of the sport so that is um the most challenging so just 
working at that level is is absolutely fantastic and you know that's what i want for for us to be in the future is to have as many world title triumphs as possible in terms of boxing science we launched it to have a, an impact on the sport um to improve uh, training quality uh, from a sport science perspective and a strength and conditioning perspective and there's a few different ways we can do that we're wanting to absolutely revamp our website to have as much information on there as possible have videos and, and webinars and everything all on, on one format and that's something that we're working towards in the next year and we're hoping, hoping that that's a successful launch and um, lots of coaches buy into it uh, but another thing is is uh, we're wanting to have affiliated uh, boxing science kind of training hubs around the country we want to make sure that the the youth um, the kind of the next generation of, of boxers coming through actually have this opportunity in uh, to do the strength and conditioning and to make sure that they're uh, developing as as an athlete as well as a boxer at the same time when we first started there weren't that many strength and conditioning coaches about in boxing um because it, it, it's a hard sport to, and and very uh, trusted traditions that they have to try and change it around slowly but surely more and more people are doing uh, strength and conditioning in boxing but strength and conditioning coaches cost money and a lot of these kids that are coming through are coming from not as uh, fortunate backgrounds um, so we're wanting to be able to develop a program where they can go to do strength and conditioning uh, for free and that's why we're uh, doing the youth athlete initiative we're going around we're doing free testing free workshops um, you know percentage for our, our profits that we make from the ebooks and and from the online courses as well we actually reinvest that so we can go around and start collecting the data um, of why youth boxers need strength and conditioning but also to provide them with with education provide them with some goals and some home training plans as well for them to like to to, to kick start the process and you know we've done one one or two different workshops already and you know these are just small steps to the bigger picture where we hopefully see a boxing science program in every um england boxing affiliated uh club in the country mm. you know we're in a we're in a really privileged position me and danny working at the university and having access to the facilities that we do uh, the equipment that we do yeah, yeah we, we've worked hard to get to get where we are and being able to understand how to use the, the facilities and the equipment uh, in the right way and yes we've managed to attract some some really high caliber athletes along the way as well and you know it it'd be sad if we if we didn't take the opportunity to um to to try and pass on some of the the knowledge and experiences that that we've got over the last well for me over the last 10 years and working in boxing over the past four five six years and you know because not many not many people have these opportunities that that we've got you know not not many people can afford to go to university you know not many people can um spend the time that that we've had you know developing the systems that we've had and in, and in turn they don't have the opportunity to, to make their their boxers uh, their combat athletes the safest possible athletes when they enter competition and so it's really important that we we give back as, as as much as we can we had the head of the australian institute of sport combat center uh, come over and and, and uh, see us a couple of summers ago and she said that you don't keep many things secret do you and <laughs> like actually we don't keep anything secret because most of the things that that we've done we've lifted from the scientific research anyway and we've just applied to our own context and so no there isn't 
I don't believe there is any secrets in in sports science. If there is, there isn't there isn't many at all. The secret is in the process and the way that you apply the information that you have, uh, and the way that you uh, use each individual's athletic profile and and constraints of a situation. You know whether that be time constraints, whether that be uh, work constraints, financial constraints, anything. Um, using all that information and, and integrating it to, to to get the best possible uh, outcome for your for your athlete and for the and for the rest of the coaching as well you know you know we haven't mentioned that that we work with nutritionists or psychologists um and you know even with some some performance analysis as well so there's there's a team you know just behind behind me and Danny and, and, and Tommy as well and they help help us and, and they support us and they they feed into the athlete as well and then the, the, obviously the athlete's got their own support network you know they've got their their coaches uh they've got their assistant coaches at the gym as well you know maybe they've got their their wife or the girlfriend or the fiance or the kids or the grandmas you know or the granddads you know they've got a whole support network as well and, w- and what we do is it directly influences those support networks as well you know so if we're if we're doing something that is absolutely amazing and we're getting you know great results for the for the boxers and then they in turn have a great performance and they can make their lives better for for their families and their own support network and also the coaches as well who who train them then you know then we should absolutely be trying our best to do that because you know the, the, it is they're taking punishment for for money essentially and we've got to be able to prepare them as best as possible for that love it so where can what's the website and where can people learn more about you guys and boxing science the website is boxingscience.co.uk um we also have a youtube channel that we post quite a lot on uh, that's if you just type in boxing science um you should be able to find us there's a few weird uh, videos in there that is not nothing to do with us but if you search, search for bo- boxing science you'll find us eventually hopefully you'll be able to work out what is us, yeah. what's not us. <laughs> uh, but my instagram wilson underscore boxing science uh, post something on there uh, two three times a day whether that's um, training highlights or information like information infographs or education something like that we've got loads and loads of content on there um do you want to plug your instagram as well i think it's dr dot ruddock underscore box which is completely ridiculous i'm thinking how that's said it out loud might need to change if, if you go on, if you go on my instagram wilson wilson underscore boxing science you'll find alan in one of the posts <laughs> No, that's class, guys. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. And um, I can't believe it's taken so long to get you guys on. But no, I really appreciate you coming on and um, sharing the story and sharing your experience and your knowledge on all things fighting. Brilliant, Rob. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Firstly, massive thanks to Alan and Danny for giving up their time and having a nice long chat about all the things they do at Boxing Science and at Sheffield Hallam. So also big thanks to I Measure You, to Hawking Dynamics, Black Box Fitness and Eccentric for sponsoring this episode today. As I say every week, the podcast could not run in its current form without the support of them for fantastic sponsors. So we've got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Got a couple of part twos, a couple of part ones. Uh, Make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and I will speak to you next week.